Welcome to One Story at a Time. I'm your host, Heather Bodie, the Executive Artistic Director of the nonprofit organization Erasing the Distance. We collect and share stories from people whose lives have been impacted by their mental health in an effort to create space for conversation, educate, and ultimately to disarm the deadly stigma that prevents so many people from finding a path to healing. Here we invite you to join us in the first part of the story collection process, the interview, where we dig into the beautiful, messy details that make us human, while addressing a topic that is so often kept in the dark. Hearing these words gives us a window into someone's life in a way that can increase our empathy and understanding, not only for other people, but also for ourselves. In this episode, we sat down with Nyla Maya Cologne, a talented musician working toward becoming a social worker, and she actually composed the music that is playing under my voice right this very minute. During our conversation, we talk about family, coming into the feeling of being fully yourself, and the power that comes from the support of having community. This is Nyla's story. So I think I've gotten to the point, like, you know, like it's been at this point three months on like hormones that my voice has become a lot more, I guess, of an indicator for other people, you know, that like, oh, you know, like this isn't, you know, this isn't a girl. This is some guy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like, recently I went to a Walgreens and, like, with my mask on and my ponytail up, and I, I think I was wearing something pretty feminine, um, you know, initially I was greeted with, like, oh, you know, like, hi, ma'am, you know? And I was like, yes, I won uh, the conversation. And then after I talked, like, you know, by the end of the whole transaction they were like oh you know like you know like have a nice day sir and I was like oh thanks you too Mm -hmm. so it was like I was so close (laughs) but yeah no it's just I think when you know like if you're a trans person who decides to transition in some way you know like there comes a point where certain elements of yourself become kind of amplified because of the perception that like you're worried about that other people have at least for me like I I also have anxiety so that's just a general thing but for me it's always been you know kind of like I really wish people would just know that I'm a girl Mm -hmm. you know and so now that I'm like transitioning it's been nice because like I feel more affirmed in the sense that like you know like maybe my friends in the back of their minds they were like oh you know like but is she really which is totally just a paranoid you know made up thought in my head because I know my friends you know care about me in the right way and like are affirming my identity but now it's like you know at least in my close circle, I feel a lot more like, okay, you know, like here's this, I feel like I'm on the right path, but then everybody else around me, I'm like, oh, but like now there's going to be that one thing that's going to be pointed out. My facial hair is going to be a lot more noticeable if anybody like sees me, you know, having a little bit of facial hair, a little bit of stubble, you know, they're going to be like, hmm, that's not entirely a girl, you know, or if it's my voice. Um, or if it's my eyebrows, I don't know, just like a bunch of stuff. Or if it's the way I walk, if it's like my shoulders, just so many things that kind of go in your head as, um, 
as you transition, which again, it's not always the same for everybody. You know, like some trans people, they're just like, I'm just fine with, you know, I know who I am and I feel confident in both my body and my connection with my body and myself. And so I'm, I don't feel the need to, you know, transition in any way. Like there, there isn't a transition for me. And then for some trans people, they're like, I, you know, I want to transition in X, Y, Z way. You know, for me, I, you know, this is just my process is as I'm transitioning, certain things become more highlighted. Mm-hmm. When you thought about coming in and sitting down and talking today, where did you want to start? Probably like eighth grade. Um, prior to that, I was, you know, I was a pretty shy person. I didn't really connect much with many people. Um, I think, I think actually that journey itself is the gender and the mental health and the music, all of those are really like entangled with each other. Um, but like, you know, when I was like in elementary school, I never, like, I had a couple friends and when I mean friends, I mean like maybe I would talk to them at that moment, but I would never like, you know, really make the effort to hang out with them. And, um, you know, like, especially I didn't feel any connection to people. Uh, my parents were very enthusiastic about me wanting to hang out with people. They'd be like, oh, please, like, you know, like, if you have a friend, bring them over. I think they were probably concerned, like, why, why is she so antisocial? Um, but the one friend that I did have that I remembered feeling a connection to was uh, a friend of mine, you know, we don't talk, like, we haven't talked in, like, since middle school, maybe, uh, but her name was Giletti, and, you know, she was, like, the first girl that I ever encountered. Every Wednesday, I would hang out with her. I would go to her place. It was, like, a little apartment space with her and her two younger uh, sisters, and, it, you know, it was, like, the girliest room ever. You know, obviously, they're, like, young girls, and, you know, I had, like, you know, posters of Zac Efron, High School Musical, Justin Bieber hanging up. And, like, eventually during the hangout, they would kind of, like, gang up on me and not physically beat me up, but just, you know, kind of, like, make me feel like crap a bit with, like, what... Um, I, I, I don't fully remember that. That part is a little foggy, but... I remember, you know, I would tell my mom about this as we left and my mom would be like, okay, then we're not coming back. And I'd be like, no, no, we have to come back next week. And it took me until I was like 16, maybe, to realize why I wanted to keep coming back to this one girl's house, the first girl I ever met, the only person I connected with. I never connected with any guys. You know, guys were foreign to me. And there was this one girl and I was just like, there is something so wonderful about being around this person. And I feel so connected, even if I feel abused in a sense. And, and what, if you could articulate what that extreme connection was, like, have you right. put language to it yet? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think the way I explained it, I was kind of imagining it like a, you know, like in one of those animated kids movies that's like trying to be progressive, but they don't like ever actually say queer or gay or anything like that. You know, 
Uh, so they're just like, oh, you know, like, well, there's something, you know, like it'll be like a guy <laughs> character. There'll be a guy character who's like, oh, yeah, you know, my partner and I were talking. And then that's the only reference that may allude to them being gay. But no, um, the connection that I had with that girl was that kind of, you know, femininity and that girlhood uh, because I hadn't had that, you know, up until that point. I hadn't had any connections with anybody, but this one girl just made me go like, holy crap, like I want to be around this person. And I didn't know it at the time, obviously, like this was all nothing to me, but you know, I didn't realize I wanted to kind of experience some of that, you know, like all those little moments, you know, like when I would like play video games with my cousin you know, like, uh, there's a game Left for Dead, and I would always choose Zoe, the one female character out of all four of them. And I remember eventually my cousin would be like, oh, why are you choosing Zoe all the time? Are you gay or something? And I'd be like, uh, no. <laughs> you know, because I didn't realize it at the time. I remember during seventh grade, that's when I started growing facial hair, and I, I felt the compulsion to grow out my mustache which was a horrible mistake, by the way. I took my eighth grade photo and I have like an 80s porn stash. Oh, that's I have what, to see it. That's what my aunt would always say, like, oh, you got your porn stash there, which is so funny. I was like 12 and she was talking about that. But, you know, like, <laughs> that's what it was like. And, you know, I think that ended up becoming one of the things that, like, my parents would use against me in our beginning, like, discussions about you know, how I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah. And you know, like, I don't think I'm a boy. Like I'm a girl. And probably like 14, 15 was when I started like really coming to terms with that. And they'd always be like, oh, but like, you know, like you grew out your mustache. You, you liked that, didn't you? And I look back and I'm like, I didn't really like that. I just did that to feel some connection to the boys in, you know, in my time. Like I, you know, seventh grade, I finally had like a small group of guy friends and really the only like fun aspect of that for me, like the only compulsion that I had was like, oh, you know, like we can play video games together. Like not really necessarily that connection one-on-one. -on -one. It was more so like, oh, well I can like, you know, I have my guy friends so like my parents can get off my back, you know, hmm. and yeah, like, again, that mustache, it was more so, like, a compulsion, like, oh, well, I guess I gotta do this. It wasn't me going, yes, like, I'm so, I love this, you know, but again, you know, I think that's one of the things that when you are transitioning and your parents don't necessarily get it, you know, and you don't fit the exact mold of, like, the trans experience that, like, you're always told about in media, um, you know, that tends to be one of those things where, like, you know, people will point that out as, like, oh, well, that's not, that that doesn't make sense then because you did this. But in reality, it's just you feeling like you have to do that. Not for yourself, but so that way people can get off of you. So 14, 15, you, you said you started to have conversations with your parents. Did you feel like, I guess my curiosity is that day, that moment of like, I'm talking to mom and dad today. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that feeling or that decision or anything? Or is that sort of like way in history? Uh, I more so remember me coming to terms with it myself. 
than like the actual conversation. It was I was watching, it was like the first season of American Horror Story, and one of the actresses, Lily Rabe, uh, she plays like a character in like an older generation of the Murder House, and she looked so gorgeous and so beautiful, and like that was the first time I kind of looked at that and you know and I was like oh my god I wish I looked like that I wish I could like look like that pretty and beautiful and not just like in general like pretty and beautiful as a woman and it was like in that moment that it kind of like clicked for me um and I don't know you know I was a pretty open book with my parents up until this point so I'm pretty sure like I, I I imagine that like in the following week I probably told them this thought that I had of myself and it was it was pretty dismissive you know because again there were no signs when I was younger at least signs that they were paying attention to or that I was even paying attention to um because again there was the whole you know I would always hang out with that one girl um thing which I think personally for me that was definitely a sign you know, me playing the female character in every video game that I got a chance to, that was also a sign for me. But those weren't signs that they had considered, you know. Those were signs that, like, didn't fit the narrative that they were fed, I guess. And so it became pretty dismissive. Um, And I think that was the moment where, like, my relationship with them changed specifically the relationship with my dad. Because mm-hmm. when I was growing up, I was like a daddy's boy. And it was when I first started kind of like exploring my queerness and, you know, like coming out to him that our relationship just completely changed. You know, like I used to feel so, you know, tight with him, so connected with him. And then, you know, from that moment until like maybe a you know, three or four years ago, I felt like he was kind of like the villain Mm. of my life, which is so like knowing in hindsight now, like that is so heartbreaking. And I wish that I could go back and tell, you know, my younger self, like, Oh, you know, like just, you know, I know it's really hard right now, but there's so much more to this than, you know, like this experience and these opposing sides of your identity. You know, because, like, I actually get along with my dad really well in most regards. He is super supportive. He loves the shit out of me. Like, he absolutely, like, there's been so many moments where he's been, like, you know, like, if you were, if anything were to happen to you, if you were to die, I would not even want to live with myself. And that that's something that he still says. And yet, like, there's always those moments in, like, you know, we had a therapist session a couple months ago where, like, you know, like, my dad had finally said, like, you know, like, I feel like my son is still somewhere in there and that he's just fighting to get out. And that's the exact opposite experience for me. I feel like I am in here... Well, at this point, I'm already out. You know, like, I'm... My whole self is Nyla, you know, but like, you know, like I feel it's it's the opposite experience. There's no little boy hidden in here. Like, no, ew, gross. Get him out. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. Good riddance, you know. Um, 
yeah, there's none of that, but you know, so it's just so interesting. It's so layered, you know, and I think there's always a lot of discussion around like, you know, like really supportive parents and parents who kick their children out when they find out, you know, which are both like genuine experiences that right, tons you're saying of- we hear the, the, the polar sides of the spectrum. We yes. hear the like uber supportive and also the like, the absolutely yeah. horrible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But we, I, I think there's a lot of value in exploring that kind of like messy middle ground mm-hmm. where it's something like your father being like, I absolutely love you. I do not want you to ever leave my side. But at the same time, I just don't know what to make of this. I cannot make heads or tails of this. I think that's an expression. It I'm going to pretend. Okay, good, good, good. I am, <laughs> I am smart. Um, you are very smart. Thank and yes, you. that is an expression. But yeah, you know, like, you know, exploring that messy side of things, I think, is so important because, you know, like, I think if I had seen more of that from, like, other people, you know, like, more stories of that, like, oh, you know, like, for some parents, it's going to be hard. They're not going to hate you. They're just going to look at you in a different light and they're going to hope that like that little part of you, which is not a little part of you. It's actually you, but for them, it's like a little part of you and they're going to want that to be tucked away. How do you perceive what your dad is experiencing? I think I used to perceive it again in that very like negative way of like, my dad just wants to ruin my life, which again, Totally heartbreaking. I wish I could, like, go back in time and tell, you know, younger Nyla, like, it, you know, like, your feelings are valid for sure, but it is not going to be that horrible. I promise you it's going to be a very difficult journey, but it's going to be a worthwhile journey. Um, but nowadays, yeah, that's what I kind of think of it. You know, like, I, I imagine, like, you know, here's somebody who has never even, like, grown up knowing anything about, you know, gender. Barely anything about, you know, like, LGBT people, you know. Maybe we had, like, one person in the family who was, like, openly gay, but, like, that was pretty much it. And here I am, young, you know, 14. At this point, my dad definitely sees me as an impressionable person. And... Again, not having your head fully wrapped around something like gender and trans people. You hear your child say something like, I don't think I'm this. I think I'm something else. You know, I think I'm something else that you especially have never seen me as. You know, it's it's a big thing. And I totally understand. There's more, you know, more power to those who, who don't want to feel like their time is being wasted waiting for their parents to come around on something. More power to those people. For me, I value my relationship with my parents too much to let that kind of just wither out and die. You know, I, I will be patient as fuck, you know. I will wait, you know, 10 years even it'll definitely be a struggle, but you know, like I care about them a lot, but you know, somebody from like a completely, you know, different cultural background hearing something like this, especially not having your head wrapped around it. I think, you know, he still has, or both my parents still have kind of this idea that like 
this element of queerness is just like maybe, you know, like a cross dressing privately, maybe go to a show and dress like this and then put it away. And then throughout the rest of the day, you're quote unquote normal, you know, but it's, it's not, you know, like a small little side hobby thing. You know, it's not a side hustle. I'm not making money off of this. I wish I could make money for being <laughs> queer. <laughs> like I deserve con- uh, compensation. <laughs> but yeah, you know, like it's not some side hustle. It's my entire, it's my beginning, middle, end. It's my 24 7, 365 or 366, whatever year it is. You know, it's my experience. I mm-hmm. wake up and I'm a woman. I go to bed, I'm a woman. I dream and I'm a woman, you know? So I want to be explicitly clear because I know you know for the majority of the conversation so far we've been talking about gender and identity Um, but I want to be clear that that's not necessarily why we're here and on the (laughs) mics today right we're not talking about gender identity as though it are is a mental health issue right so Uh let's so let's switch over and talk about mental health a little bit where does your mental health journey come into play Mm, okay, yeah, it, it kind of comes around the same time as I was exploring queerness, which is probably why I ended up going on the whole transgender tangent. Which, no, again, not a tangent yeah. at all. I just want to yeah. make sure that both mm-hmm. for people listening, but also for you and I, that we're mm-hmm. clear that we're not here talking about gender as though that is a mental health diagnosis. Yeah, no. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, no, no. So I, I just want to be like really crystal clear Very about true, that. yeah. No, and especially that is that is kind of an interesting thing when like, you know, gender is for some people classified as like a mental disorder, you know. Um, for many years it's been like, oh, you have to be diagnosed with like gender dysphoria or um, I'm trying to think if that, yeah, I think it's like gender dysphoria disorder or something like that in order to be considered for, like, transition stuff, which is, again, like, such a bizarre thing. Um, But, yeah, no, in terms of my mental health journey, I'd say it started probably around eighth grade. Um, Again, really shy person, but I had started blossoming, I'd say. I finally found, like, a group of friends that, like, I considered, like, to be my first, like, solid, like, best friends. These are my friends, I'm so excited to see them. I can't wait to see them when I get it in school. Oh, we're going to hang out like on the weekends. We're going to go to, you know, Pop's Beef, you know, because uh, I, I lived in like a, a small town like Lyons, Illinois, and they just opened up a Pop's Beef. And so every like Saturday morning we would go or not Saturday morning, every Saturday like afternoon. We yeah, would it was go. like, oh, is it like 9 a.m. beef breakfast? Yeah, no, oh my God. <laughs> Knowing me, I would do something fucked up like that. I that mean, is, I would too. <laughs> yeah, that is true. My obsession I, with Portillo's is strong. Very, yeah, no, I think I, I'm, I'm fine with being a messy enough person to eat something that is not breakfast food in the morning. Although I love breakfast food. For the most part. But, you know, like, that was the type of friend group that I finally got. I was like, I love these people. You know, like, not just like, oh, yeah, these are, you know, these are cool friends to hang out with, I guess. But I love these people. This is my community. And, you know, yeah, around eighth grade, I started kind of experiencing, like, kind of a heavy depression. And also kind of a general anxiety, I'd say. You know, like, a heavy depression of, like, oh, my God, you know, like... I don't know if I can go on with this. I don't know what's going to happen to me next after, you know, middle school. I, you know, a lot of it 
I think I look back and I don't really generally know what I was depressed or like anxious about. I think it just kind of started popping up and it got to the point where I had to get evaluated at, you know, the hospital and, you know, my parents came with me and, you know, like I got checked up and like, you know, uh, they ended up suggesting that I go see a therapist. So that's how I got into therapy um, but I was able to, you know, I was, they were like, oh no, we don't have to hospitalize you. We just have to, you know, evaluate you. You seem fine. You can go back to school. Um, but we want you to see a therapist that's suggested. So when you say it got to the point where you had to go be evaluated, what was, what was going on that, that moment actually came where your parents were like, we got to make an appointment. Um, I think I wasn't worried or anything, you know, like I, and I only say this in the with the hindsight that I have about like how we discuss mental health in my family. So I don't necessarily know. Maybe I was worried back at uh, the time, um, but I, I, you know, I feel like at the very least there was nothing to worry about. I just felt kind of like, oh, you know, yeah, you know, I'm feeling low, and you know, my parents are going to take me to the hospital, and I don't expect myself to be put anywhere after this. I just expect it to be like a general evaluation. Um, and so, you know, we, we went together, my parents were very understanding and I remember this line always sticks with me, um, where we were like discussing kind of like my family lineage with mental health, you know, cause both sides of the family have suffered, you know, with like mental health issues, you know, like anxiety, depression, um, some cases of bipolar disorder, you know, and my mom leans over to me and whispers, we're all fucked up. You know? <laughs> and you know like obviously she meant that in like a very you know like you know we're kind a, accepting yeah like yeah kind, the feelings also kind of humorous yeah. we're a very yeah. humorous bunch oh yeah i know i was like uh, rude rude i feel like the train was high-fiving that comment yeah <laughs> no but um you know i think yeah my family has always been like a very you know humorous household my dad is definitely, like, you know, the more, like, crappy puns randomly, like, singing. And then my mom is, like, more, like, just making weird noises. <laughs> but, you know, so, like, when she said, you know, we're all fucked up, I, I you know, I knew exactly what she meant. Um, and so, you know, like, that was when I, like, started seeing a therapist. Everything was, you know, like, generally fine. I felt like maybe I was on the right path for things, but I knew that you know, eventually I was going to be graduating from middle school and my parents had the intention of moving. Um, and I was hoping to God that we would move to a location that would have allowed me to go to the same high school as most of my friend group. That was like my dream for me. And I was super excited for that. And unfortunately that didn't happen. We ended up having to move, you know, like, half an hour away which which now like as an adult i'm like yeah i could i could see them on the weekend no, i could see them in the same day but as a 13 year old i would have felt like that was that that is like a death sentence you're yes. like oh my god i might as well be on a private island <laughs> you know um but not in a good way where it's like oh yeah private island i got a butler or something but like private island isn't like i got stranded on this island <laughs> um and so we ended up moving and I had to relearn how to interact with people all over again. I had to like, I didn't know anybody, you know, but 
uh, I moved there and I didn't know anybody. The only people I knew were like people that I kind of just met who were like family friends who also went to the high school. So it was kind of like, you know, like I had kind of a little bit of a safety net. But I remember like I was a wreck, especially those first two years. But I think like the first years where I kind of like, again, like started like really experiencing some shit, like where I was just so overwhelmed anxious about everything I don't think I was necessarily depressed I think I was more anxious at this point where I was just like I you know I don't understand how to talk to people I don't know how to fit into this place and eventually it got to the point where I was like I need to see and at the time I didn't know what a social worker was so I went to the counselor who I didn't realize in high school counselors are just like people who help you like they're your advisors that like help you like oh you know like these are courses you're going to be taking and this and that this is the colleges that you could apply to in the future so I didn't realize that I thought they were social workers so here I am walking into my counselor's room and I'm like giving her my life story for like 45 minutes crying she's white-faced as hell I feel so I I am so sorry, Miss Kazira. <laughs> I did not know that you were, um, you know, just a counselor. I didn't know what a social worker was at the time. Forgive me. Um, but she was so white-faced. You could tell she didn't know what to do, but she didn't want to, like, stop the, you know, yeah. the talking, the venting, essentially. And right after, you know, I finish and everything, she's like, um... So, like, the social worker is on the second floor if you want to see her, (laughs) you know? Like, you can tell she was, like, so empathetic, and she didn't know what to do, and she was like, you know, like, oh, like, you can just... There's a social worker upstairs, and, you know, I will gladly, like, bring you over there. Walk you over there, yeah. Yeah. And so I I was, like, you know, like, wiping my tears away, like, okay, let me reload so I can (laughs) do this whole thing You gotta do it all over again. Yeah, and so that's, you know, that's when I met... um, my high school social worker at the time, Miss Hendricks, who, you know, like we're Facebook friends now and we, you know, we'll talk every now and then. Um, but like Miss Hendricks, like really redirected the trajectory of my life because like, you know, just like interacting with her, like she felt very supportive and she was also so eccentric. She had so much confidence. She exuded energy to her, you know, I just loved the way that she would, interact with me and again like having that kind of support that resource um she like introduced me to my first like couple friends because like she knew obviously that like I felt very alone and so she introduced me to like a couple theater friends and that's how I got into theater for like a year or two um before I got too anxious to do theater again but you know like she was really a resource for me and you know, when I, I had a conversation like halfway through my sophomore year where like my dad was like, you know, like, oh, like, you know, like, let's start figuring out like maybe what you want to do with your life. I forget what the, I think it was because of the fact that like we were thinking of moving to Florida and my dad wanted to know if I could try and apply to a certain university. And as long as they had something on that course curriculum that I could go for, then we'd be good. Obviously, we didn't end up moving to Florida. Thank God, because... Florida is so sweaty. <laughs> um, and I have hyperhidrosis. So, like, that would be horrible. Um, I would be wet all the time. But 
that's not the important bit of that. Um, the important bit is I, you know, I kind of looked at all the moments that I had interacted with Miss Hendricks over the past like year and a half at that point, and I was like, I think I want to be a social worker, you know, and obviously I have a much more. I have a much better understanding of what social work is now, now that I'm in the graduate program. But, you know, even back then, it felt so compelling to me to have that compassion. I wanted to be like Miss Hendricks, which I guess another, you know, little tie to gender there, you know, like having this like feeling of like, I love like, you know, like kind of that femininity, but not even just the femininity, just like the whole like element of like compassion and, you know, like drive and, you know, like funniness, humor, you know, at the time I didn't feel like I was like really that humorous. I, although I look back and like, I remember in middle school, people thought, you know, some people thought that I was funny, but I think for like a year and a half, I felt like it was sapped out of me because I was so in such a rut. Um, but yeah, that was kind of like also the, you know, the seedlings of my, you know, journey into social work and, you know, as I went through my freshman year, the first half of it, I was just so overwhelmed with classes that at one point I told my teacher, you know, I need to see the social work, uh, the social worker, I need to see Miss Hendricks. And I, I think I, I think I made something up to Miss Hendricks that like, oh, you know, I'm thinking of like, you know, really hurting myself or hurting somebody else. And, you know, I know that at the time, like, that wasn't true. That was just me being overwhelmed, and I felt like I really needed to come up with an excuse to get out of class for the day. And then, you know, like, Miss Hendricks was like, okay, you need to be evaluated because that is a serious thing. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, okay, this is just going to be, like, the last time, huh? And so, you know, I go with my parents to get an evaluation. I think at this point they were, like, a little more like, oh, you know, like, I thought things were better. You can open up to us, you know, like we've made it clear. And then we're like waiting in the hospital for like five hours. And then they tell us like, oh, you're going to have to go to this one place for like, you know, at least several days uh, inpatient care, you know. And so luckily in this case, like I like my parents were able to, you know, we were able to go home and sleep and then in the morning I had to take my stuff and go to inpatient for however long and I didn't know what it was at the time but then I realized oh I'm you know like kind of just in a space with a bunch of other people who you know have mental health issues and flare-ups and stuff for like four days at that point this was the first time I was ever separated from my parents and so I was like bawling my eyes out the first day because like of course um the only thing I had to look forward to once I got out of inpatient was I had heard Royals by Lord for the first time on the radio, as well as um, Born to Die by Lana Del Rey for the first time. And so that was the only thing I had looking forward, like that I was looking forward to over those four days was like, you know, once I get out, I can listen to that music. <laughs> um, and obviously, you know, to this day now, I'm a very big Lord fan. Um, not so much a Lana Del Rey fan as much. Like, you know, she, I, I listen sometimes, but that's not, again, that's also not an important thing about this, but like, you know, like having that time in that inpatient care, um, the first time, that was the first time I went into inpatient. It wasn't like 
all that bad looking back on it. I think at the time I even knew it wasn't all that bad. Like, I felt like I was in kind of a friendly environment, you know. I was able to get along with, like, the rest of the people that were, you know, in there with me. We would have conversations and stuff. It was cool. And then, you know, eventually, because of that, because I was able to kind of put on a face and be like, I think I'm fine, four days went in and they were like, okay, you can leave now, you know. Mm -hmm. And I left and, you know, I had missed, like, about a week of school and, you know, I kind of kept going chugging along but it was never about the classwork it was like I just was so overwhelmed thinking about you know again how am I gonna fit in what is going on with my friends you know um what is going on with like my relationships you know because at this point I was probably on my third or fourth relationship in like the past like six months romantic relationship romantic relationship which is I look back I'm like I was a baby why was I in so many relationships so quickly um you know and I think that that was definitely like kind of an attachment thing is especially like you know wanting to be able to kind of talk with whoever I was like involved with at the time and being anxious about like you know like how am I gonna talk to them and like you know like how do I keep them quote unquote Mm. you know because again I had gone through like several like uh, you know obviously in the course of like eight or nine months that's very brief but for like all of them but you know it was just it was yeah it was never about classwork it was about like all of those personal social and personal social and personal Mm -hmm. you know at this point I wasn't even thinking about you know gender at this point I was like I feel like I am, like, queer for sure. And I would, like, throw around labels and kind of, you know, switch what I thought it was, you know. But I knew I was queer in some sense. Um, But that was never really the big thing, Mm. you know. Because I think at this point I was, like, kind of content. Or not content, but it wasn't, like, I think, you know, like, in the hindsight of, like, knowing what happened when, like, gender came into the picture, like, it was nowhere near as intense as when that came in. Mm. So, it, it, to me, it doesn't feel significant mm-hmm. during that time. But, yeah, it was, like, a lot of personal and social anxiety around how am I going to, you know, connect to people? You know, mm. what do I do? How do I make an impression? How do I you know, not seem weird to people, you know, well, for starters, maybe not wearing, you know, t-shirts that are all of the band gorillas, like throughout the entire week. So that way people end up calling you gorillas kid, you know, for like the first like year or so. And actually maybe two years. Um, yeah, you know, maybe that, uh, in hindsight would have been helpful, but yeah, you know, it was always like figuring out how to socialize and how to be a person. So you get back from this four-day stint, then what? Then I just kind of act as though nothing has gone wrong. Uh, I I was still I was still every like Saturday going to Pops Beef, and you know like so I still had some semblance of a friend group, but it, they weren't you know I I think because I had that I wasn't making as much of an effort to connect with the people in my high school because I was like 
you know, I really would like to have people here, but as long as I got, you know, my buddies back home, you know, it's all fine. And then, you know, like it was just kind of a, you know, again, a general anxiety. Everything was fine though. You know, I had just successfully, uh, completed my first, you know, role in theater, uh, in freshman year. I was Zeus in a very interesting, like comedic play, I think it was called like saving the Greeks one tragedy at a time. And I was Zeus near the end. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I successfully completed that. And then from there, um, I just kind of, again, I look back and I'm like, I could tell I was like getting on a downward spiral, but this was like 2014 middle of the summer, you know, everything was kind of fine. And I listened to an album by Michael Cera, uh, this one actor um, who, you know, you're, you're probably like, Michael Cera made an album? Yeah, Arrested Development. Yeah, yeah, Juno. Arrested Development, yeah. Juno, Scott Pilgrim. Um, but he did make an album. It was called True That. It was very, like, lo-fi folk, kind of. And... That was the first moment that I thought to myself, you know, maybe I could make something. Maybe I could, like, try doing music. And so I, you know, I asked my dad if I could get an acoustic guitar. And we ended up, you know, ordering a $30 acoustic guitar off of the internet. And I got it. And obviously I played like shit at the beginning because that's what happens when you get a new instrument. You're going to play like shit. But right off the bat, as soon as I got that and as soon as I got like this tiny little like USB microphone that you could connect to your computer and I got like the free audio program Audacity, may she rest in peace because I guess now like the the data in it is all messed up. So mm. Audacity doesn't work. Um, but, you know, like I got all that. And even as I was just learning how to play guitar, how to write anything how to sing. I had never sang before. Um, I just hit the ground running and I was like recording little things and I was posting them onto like Tumblr, you know, for like people to hear and probably be like, Oh, like this is very rough because like you're just learning all of this. Um, and that found, you know, that gave me a comfort. I was already going like, Oh, I'm going to put it on an album. It's going to be called this. And I'm going to take this photo um, and then my sophomore year started, which was probably the worst year in terms of like mental health, you know, gender, you know, arguments with my parents. It was horrible. And, you know, January came around and I was, you know, I was suicidal. You know, I, I had attempted a couple times. Uh, although like I look back and like there were, you know, there were, I could tell that in, on some level, subconsciously, I knew I'm too afraid to die, so I'm not going to actually put an effort into this. I'm just going to feel as though I am trying to kill myself, you know? So thankfully, that's a good thing that, like, I still felt too afraid to die, so that way I didn't actually go through with anything. Um, but it was still a very real, like, I wish I wasn't here. Um, and, it was, yeah, it was early January. And, you know, like I was, you know, I was starting to kind of like quietly explore gender, you know, wear things that I wanted to wear, wear some makeup, you know, but 
privately. Like I would wear stuff and then 10 minutes later I would take it off because I knew like eventually my dad's coming home from work and I don't want him to see me. I don't want him to like, you know, walk in in the room and be like, oh, what are, oh my God, what are you doing? Um, you know, and that mixed in with the suicidal, you know, stuff with anxiety, intense depression, you know, um, not entirely around gender, but the gender, you know, and the arguments with my parents was definitely a big thing. Cause especially, you know, this was just when the whole like dad not feeling connected with me thing was fresh. So I was like, especially like, oh my God, I'm, you know, I lost my guy, you know, <laughs> my big guy. Um, you know, and it led to, you know, a therapist session where my parents came in with me and, you know, I was hoping this is going to be when I convince them. You know, this is going to be the final nail in the coffin where they're going to be like, we'll, we'll get you. We'll, we'll work with this. You know, we'll get through this together. And I ended up getting so overwhelmed and emotional that my therapist ended up calling 911. Mm-hmm. And I got taken in the ambulance to... The hospital, which was luckily, like, right over. <laughs> you know, like, it was a block down. Um, so it was a very quick trip. And we were in that hospital room for, like, four or five hours. And at this point, I think my parents were both, like... Or at least my dad was, like, more so exhausted. You know, like, it wasn't like he... he I don't think he felt really, like, empathetic about the whole thing. He just felt very, like, you did it again. Damn it. You know, like I thought we were doing better, you know. And again, I look back on that and I realize he was probably just like so overwhelmed with like the thought that like, oh, my God, I thought things were improving, you know. Uh, But like it came off very much in like a you messed up way at the time. So that just made it worse. And then I ended up getting taken to um, Heartgrove, which was the the worst experience. And that's what motivated me to not being hospitalized ever again. And I haven't been hospitalized since. Um, but I was there for seven days and I felt so isolated. And on top of that, I was like going through gender stuff and gender dysphoria. I shaved every single day. And then suddenly I go into a place where you have to be watched in order to be shaving because you know, you could do anything with that. And it took me like, four days, five days to finally get to shave. And even then a guy, you know, obviously a guy was watching me and they didn't have any shaving cream. So I had to use hand soap. It was the worst experience of my fucking life. It was so horrible. And I didn't, you know, like I didn't even feel like I was actually like improving, you know, with my mental health. I just felt like I was getting better at hiding it. I ended up getting out. Um, you know, after a week, I was in there for seven days and, you know, I was still in an intense place, but, you know, I think I was again, just scared straight, I guess, from the whole experience of being in the hospital that I just kind of learned like, okay, I got to do something. And I was still, you know, doing music stuff. And I think at this point I was definitely like, I had relied on it as a coping mechanism. So I was writing more songs. At this point, I had a little band together. We were originally called Comfort Food with two zeros in the food part. (laughs) Uh, But it turns out there's like, I guess, I think it was like there was a jazz band called Comfort Food and we felt like it was a little too close. A little too close, yeah. 
And then uh, my dad was like, why don't you call yourselves Forever Alumni? <laughs> and so we called ourselves Forever Alumni. It was pretty much, honestly, it was Is just... Is that really how your dad talks, or is that no, just your no, feelings that... about the, the name? <laughs> That's my feelings about the name. I don't <laughs> yeah, know how to... Call yourselves Forever Alumni. <laughs> no, I think he'd be like, you should probably call yourselves Forever Alumni. I, I can't even really imitate my dad. That's so funny. <laughs> I can imitate his behaviors, but not his voice. Not his voice. Mm. Yeah, but... Hmm. You know, we called ourselves Forever Alumni, and, you know, it was really just kind of an excuse for us to hang out. It wasn't really, like, playing music. But I was like, we are going to make an album. We're going to record. We're going to play together. You know, so I was very much kind of, like, dictatoring, you know, over it. Um, and, yeah, I think I think kind of music started, like, getting more serious for me, and that was what really helped me through the rut of like exploring my gender and exploring like my mental health issues. Um, and ever since then, it's been like my number one coping mechanism. You know, I have not self harmed in I don't even know how long because I just think I could do music instead. And I would rather develop a healthy habit of, you know, relying on music than, you know, feel like, oh, I'm alleviating the pain through self-harming. This is the way it's got to be, mm. you know? So it's it's been a very, very big help is creating, you know, pretty much constantly, even if it's, like, coming up with ideas in my head, like, oh, I want to, like, do this album, you know, on the moon or something. <laughs> Obviously nothing that ambitious. Um, we can't do that yet, you know? Someday. Someday, uh, so it, does that take us through the end of high school and into college? Um, yeah, I'd say so. You know, I feel like the second half of high school was a lot better for me. You know, I felt like much more like, you know, confident, like I could be myself around everybody, even if some people were weird about it. It was like still a generally supportive environment. I learned how to control myself a lot more like, you know, not feel so overwhelmed, especially with, like, people who, like, didn't necessarily agree with me on everything. You know, like, I think when I was younger, I especially felt like when somebody would say something that I didn't agree with, my blood would, like, be boiling on the inside. Mm. And I'd be like, oh, I'm like, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go off on you. But then eventually, you know, like, I think it turned into more of, like, a let me listen and then maybe let me, you know, say what I want to say about this. And... You know, who knows, maybe I can give it an additional perspective. You know, and that was a good thing for me because, like, obviously there were so many kids in my high school who didn't understand anything about gender, you know, or trans people. And so I was kind of, you know, I, I was willing to be an educational source for them, you know, which again, you know, like I think in terms of, or not again, cause I haven't said anything about this. Um, but you know, in terms of like being in a community that is not kind of like the norm, uh, I don't think you need to be an educational resource for everybody. I don't think you need to be the wise sage about everything. It, you know, that's a, that's a big task to ask, especially for people who like, you can tell like they're not asking you out of a genuine interest. They're asking you and it's going to go in one ear and right out the other. And they're going to be like, I don't know what that means anyway. Um, if that happens, you know, I'm, 
look it up, Google it, you know, Google is free, you know, <laughs> that type of uh, wonderful activism on my part. But, you know, for the most part, I became that kind of educational resource because I was like, I think this is a big part of my life and I love it and I want people to know, you know, like what to do. You know, I want people to know that like pronouns don't equate to gender. You know, I want to, I want people to know that there is not one single experience, you know, like somebody may be like, I, I identify really closely with womanhood, but I don't want to shave. You know, I think my facial hair is totally fine. You know, in fact, maybe I think it is a part of my, you know, experience as a woman, you know, and that is totally fine. Learning to be like, you know, as long as you take out those kind of gendered assumptions in your head, which can be a difficult thing, especially if you were born and raised in a society that tells you, you know, like, oh yeah, you got to say like, hey, sir, hey, ma'am, you know, um, oh, you know, like I see facial hair, I think guy, I see lipstick, I think girl, if I see both, that's a no, no, you know, learning how to kind of strip that away and be like, I don't know, you know, who you are as a person. All I know is that you are right in front of me and I can talk to you without ever bringing up gender. That's Mm, fine, mm -hmm. you know, and that's acceptable. And I don't have to like, you know, like tap my foot on the ground going, oh no, what are they? (laughs) I'm so horrified at what I don't know. (laughs) You know, Mm. the transgender mystique, you know? Um, So I, I became that educational resource and I think that helped. And, you know, I got really into music still. It was growing, growing, growing. And, you know, uh, when I got into college, I was at that point so enthusiastic and I started getting recording equipment, like very, you know, very small recording equipment, like an interface and a microphone. And, you know, I, I, we moved into a new house. So like I had a basement that I was able to have both my room in and also my studio, you know, which was a dream for me. And it still is like really every now and then I think like, wow, I'm really like privileged to have something like this. Um, like such a creative space that I can like keep myself in. Um, you know, and so I was like still creating and I, you know, I put out like a little EP of like acoustic music, you know, at near the end of 2017 and I've just been, you know, working on music ever since. And I feel like I keep on growing and learning. And I think the biggest thing for me has been sharing that with others. Cause again, I'm very privileged to have what I have and, you know, I think that motivated me to learn how to produce and mix music for other people. So that if, you know, if anybody's like, oh man, I really need drums recorded. I have the microphones. I have the space. All you need to do is bring the drums and bring the drummer and bring the enthusiasm. And then I will do the rest. You know, it, it is so rewarding to contribute to that kind of music community and feel like I'm making kind of an imprint in that and working with people, collaborating with people. That is where I've found my friendships Mm -hmm. to go from like 13 or even younger than that and be like, I don't know how to talk to people. And now to be like, I don't know how to stop talking to people. (laughs) You know, I don't know how to stop talking to people. I'm so much more lively. You know, I definitely am closer to Miss Hendricks now than I was back then, you know, and obviously with my own twinge of, um, 
or tinge, I don't know what the word is, my own dash of me, of Nyla, you know, uh, it, it feels really like I am a full person, a human, and I'm fine, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, uh, when I was, you know, just starting to write music back, you know, in that like 2014, I was like 15 and, you know, feeling like shit and feeling like nobody understood me. You know, I eventually, one of the first songs that I wrote was a song called Temporary Girl. And, it, you know, it's a very simple song because, again, I was, you know, I, I just started learning uh, how to play guitar, how to write, how to sing. Um, I actually have a version of it where it's, like, from when I, like, first recorded it that sounds obviously very... I've improved a lot. But, you know, like, I approached it from, at the time, I approached the song from a very, like, kind of almost, like, reaffirming myself, like, oh, yeah, you know, like, despite what the people around me are thinking, this is who I am, and this is going to be my little mantra to myself, you know? Um, And the chorus is, you know, just, I'm not a temporary girl. I'm not a temporary girl. You know, like, it just keeps repeating that. Um, Because that was just a phrase I thought of in my head. Like, I feel like people think that this is just a phase, that this is temporary, and I'm not a temporary girl. I'm in this permanent state. I may change in terms of, like, how I identify with womanhood, but I very much will always be a woman. Um, And so I wrote that song, and it kind of... I was just put on the back burner with it. And as the years went on, you know, I I started learning more about music production. I started learning more about how to actually play the guitar well, you know. I got a lot more control over my voice. Uh, I put myself out there in a lot more musical contacts. I went to more shows. I got more engaged in the community that like really loves and supports me. I found the best friends of my life, you know, um, like I had mentioned my, my drummer before, like she's been so wonderful and I feel so connected with her, uh, just to have somebody in my life who I can, you know, like, I'm like, ah, yeah, you know, like those trans vibes, right. You know, like, um, you know, and my bassist, Araya, like all really wonderful people getting those connections with that community that like just sees me, Nyla, woman, yes, you know, <laughs> um, and I recently was thinking about it and I was like, oh, what if I just took that song from 2014 that I wrote back when I was in a completely different headspace, I felt like I needed to survive and I, you know, update it. I give it a little update. I record it with everything I know now. And it just was such a cathartic experience for me. Um, and it really summarized everything, especially, you know, like at that, at the time I was like mm, creating the song, I think it was my second month on hormones already. And, you know, just being able to, you know, come up with like how to how to you know get the percussion i was like banging on my my ottoman that i sit on as like the bass and you know um and like recording the acoustic guitar and knowing how to like put vocal harmonies and you know like such an ethereal experience and changing the lyrics especially was like a big thing because like back then you know the lyrics were very much focused on that feeling of still feeling lost and like still feeling like people don't get you and like kind of still caring about that. But this one 
this version of Temporary Girl was like, I don't fucking care. I know who I am, and I really don't care anymore. I'm not playing any fucking games. This is me. This is Nyla. And, you know, I it, it really is one of my favorite pieces of music that I've, like, put out and produced, you know, specifically. Because, like, it... I think the production is really uh, well done, you know, like I'm, I'm very happy with how it turned out. Uh, and I think it really like accentuates my journey towards accepting myself, being comfortable with myself, feeling confident, feeling sexy, feeling whole, feeling like a human and not caring so much about what, you know, the rest of society, the larger circle thinks of that because why should I give a shit? Why? Because it's me. You know, you're not the one who's waking up in this body. You're not the one going to bed in this body. You're not the one dreaming in this body. You are somebody else, somewhere else. I don't even know who you are. Um, There's another song that I wrote like a year ago that like one of the lines was like, a few good million want me dead. I haven't met them yet. What a shame. I guess my love is just too powerful, you know? Because I, w- I was thinking about that. I was thinking about, like, oh, you know, like, there are people out there who, like, fucking hate the LGBT community, who want, you know, people in the LGBT community to either convert or die. Mm-hmm. And I cannot waste my energy on those people when I don't even fucking know what they look like. Mm-hmm. And I know that they look like they have, like, so much ugliness in their hearts, and that's not anything I want to associate with. Yeah. So... You know, really, like, I think Temporary Girl, like, just capped off this wonder, or, like, kind of, uh, you know, um, and, you know, put a period on that, you know, one of the many chapters of my life. And now I've entered a chapter in my life where I feel much more human, much more adult, much more, you know, exciting and, you know, willing to survive and not even just survive. Like, I feel like I can survive and I feel like I can dance, you know, and I can, you know, love and kiss and, you know, maybe have sex if I feel like it, but I don't, I'm, you know, I'm kind of tired right now, maybe not, you know, <laughs> um, you know, and make music all as much as I can, you know, so that way I can also give to other trans people who have felt in that situation of that 15 year old who is surrounded by people who just do not understand who is in that complicated relationship with their parents that like they love them so much but they don't they feel like they're on opposite ends I want those trans people to feel like I can make it through that if you can if I can you fucking can and I'm so excited to see you I I will meet you at the nearest coffee shop, we'll we'll get a drink of coffee or iced coffee, uh, which is really nice. Or a latte. Or a latte. Maybe tea. Maybe a cold brew. Maybe you know? a cold brew. Um, a sparkling <laughs> yeah. water. A sparkling water, even. Um, you know, and we'll talk all about it. And I will be so fucking proud of you. All of the stories shared here are transcribed and shaped into monologues that are then performed by actors across the country to create space for conversation and ultimately disarm the deadly stigma that surrounds mental illness. 
A special thanks to our incredibly generous supporters, the IA O'Shaughnessy Foundation, City Arts at D-Case, Young Leaders Fund at the Chicago Community Trust, IICF Midwest, Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Blackbaud Giving Fund, and all of our individual donors without whom none of this would be possible. If you'd like to find out how you can donate or share your story, visit our website, erasingthedistance.org. Share this episode with someone you care about and love, and when the topic comes up and the conversation gets complicated, deepen your curiosity, because it's in the details of our stories where we find true connection and understanding. Thank you so much for joining us today and for helping us erase the distance one story at a time.